Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet's a modern campaign agency dedicated to using data-driven grassroots organising to build winning campaigns and make the world a better place. Whether you're in business, issue-based campaigns, or an organisation driving change in the community, Dunstreet develops strategies to overcome challenges by connecting people that share the same values and organise them to achieve common goals from the ground up. To find out how Dunstreet can partner with you, hit us up at dunstreet.com. And welcome to episode seven of Socially Democratic, a weekly centre-left and cultural podcast that will dive into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And abroad is where we are going on today's episode. We'll be speaking to an old friend of mine, um, Sam Schneidman, who was the field director for Victorian Labor in the 2014 state election campaign and 2013 uh, federal election campaign. And he and two other very inspirational uh, young Americans came over to our country uh, in that time and helped build the Community Action Network. And we'll be speaking to Sam on today's podcast about the US presidential uh, primary race for the Democratic Party. So it'll be great to get uh, Sam's insights on that. Sam actually uh, prior to him coming over to Australia was a uh, has a great story. He was a field organiser for Obama for America in 2008 in the primaries and then all the way through to the actual presidential election and then was a regional field director uh, for Obama for America in the 2012 um, presidential election against Mitt Romney. So we'll be getting his thoughts on the US uh, primary season that is uh, well underway in the United States. Uh, before we do that, don't forget that the podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. So if you are a Apple Podcast user, um, please make sure you give us uh, a rating and leave a review. And thank you to everyone who has been doing that. Greatly appreciate that. And also, I really appreciate um, the feedback. Um, and actually, if you want to let us know about any particular guests you think that would be great to have on the show, um, just drop us a line. Um, you can do that by going to our Dunn Street um, Facebook, Twitter, uh, or Instagram uh, pages or plat- social media platforms, um, or just uh, just shoot us uh, a message uh, to um, my own personal um, Twitter account, which is Stefan Donnelly's. At, my handle is at Stefan S T I O F A N D O W N E L L Y. Just send us a message, and um, and we'll try and get those guests onto the show. And obviously, don't forget to share the podcast through your various social media platforms and amongst all your friends, because the more people share it, then the more people will listen to it. And the more people listen to it, then I can get bigger guests on, because my numbers will be big. You know what I mean? We're taping this one on a Tuesday morning, um, and uh, we've got a good friend of ours on the line. It is Monday night. Let's get him on the phone and have a chat to him now. So some of my friends have been giving me a bit of shit about the podcast and suggesting that it should be not titled Socially Democratic, but titled Stephen Donnelly Talks to His Friends. Personally, I think (laughs) that they're just jealous that they haven't been asked to come on the show. Um, And the next, today's guest, uh, we've been threatening to do a podcast for the better part of two years. 
Uh, and it's now great to get him on the phone from San Francisco, California. The man who once declared to me on the way home from a phone bank, dude, Stadium Rock is awesome. <laughs> Sam Schneiderman, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you. It's good to be here. And uh, that was a wonderful piece of personal trivia that you were able to share. I can also share that you once asked me, uh, do I know who Bon Jovi was? Well, given the tyranny of distance, you can never be too sure about <laughs> what uh, what a piece of Americana has landed in Australia and what hasn't. Oh, pretty much all of it has the good and the bad, and you know, you, well, you would, know that yeah, better than that, anyone. That was early on in my uh, wonderful stay in your great country. Um, also, we should point out that you're the only person who still reads The Age cover to cover, even though you do live on the other side of the Pacific, so that's quite impressive in itself. I would do the Herald Sun if they hadn't uh, put up a paywall, but um, I think that, you know, is for my own sanity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's always good to read what the enemy are thinking. Um, let's dive right in because we've got a lot to talk about today. Um, and uh, for those of you who don't know, Sam, you and I have shared a history that began in 2013 when you arrived from the United States with two other Americans to help us introduce grassroots organising to the you know the political landscape in this country, and which ultimately led to the establishment of the uh, Community Action Network. But before your Australian chapter in your life, share with us how you actually first got involved in democratic politics uh, and campaigns, and more specifically, organising back in uh, in two thousand and eight. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um... I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., uh, in a town called Alexandria, Virginia, which um, you know is really close to the capital. And my dad worked in the State Department when I was a kid and um, was kind of always exposed to the government and what was going on. And at the dinner table, we were always talking about um, you know, how, how life works and how important the government is. And also had a pretty keen focus um, in these conversations on foreign policy, given my dad's background. Um, and since he was involved in sort of pol democratic politics, both locally and, and nationally, I was exposed to that um, as, as a young kid. Um, and then 9-11 happened. And I, my hometown of Alexandria um, is just... Uh, where I'm from is a little bit south of the Pentagon. And I was actually able to see the smoke plume from my bedroom window. So that sort of made all these like dinner table conversations much more real for me uh, in a really personal way. And um, growing up in DC, being hyper exposed to the fallout from that um, really set me about this course of being curious about what was going on in the world. And then the Iraq war happened. And, you know, by this time, I was becoming a little bit, um, you know, uh, aware uh, politically and personally of what was going on in the world. How old, how, old, how old were you at that time, Sam? In 2001, when 9-11 hit, I think uh, I was about 12 or 13. And then over the next few years, started like getting really involved as, you know, really interested in this stuff um, as my sort of uh, awakening to the world was happening. And then when I was in high school... My dad was getting involved in John Kerry's campaign and uh, actually took me with him to the 2004 Democratic Convention in Boston, which was like a really cool experience for a young kid 
who uh, was interested in this stuff um, and, you know, kind of was a little bit starstruck by, by the whole thing. But while I was there, uh, I actually happened to be, um, you know, in the stands when uh, this guy named Barack Obama gave his speech. And there was this insatiable buzz about the arena when he was giving this message. And for me, it was particularly impactful because I had really only known the world to go one way. Um, but I didn't really always think that that was the right way, you know, in terms of invading Iraq and, and the rhetoric that was involved um, in that. And he articulated this hopeful vision for our country um, and spoke really positively about the future. And that's really infectious for a young person who has a lot of life left in front of them and a desire to do good things. And so um, after that, uh, the Iraq war just got way worse. I became uh, heart very much opposed to it and was looking for a way to sort of like exercise that that anger for a lack of a better word. Mm. Um, I was looking forward to, I was looking for an opportunity to participate, um, in the changing of our country's direct direction and leadership. And, you know, I thought back to 2004 and how moved I was by Obama and, um, was really moved by the way he was building his campaign. He was, always talking about how it was going to be a grassroots campaign and anyone who wanted to join could join. Uh, and with that, you know, for my birthday, I asked for a, uh, a plane ticket to New Hampshire. And I think my parents were like, why do you want that? Cause it was in the middle of the winter mm. and, you know, not exactly the nicest time to, to go up there. And, um, I had finagled this internship somehow, uh, working on his primary campaign in, in New Hampshire. I was so excited because I had never gotten anything before, and to get that was was really cool. And so got involved in that, and that just sort of set me on this path where they taught me how to organize, and I was able to see that you can organize as a, as a profession, um, and it's something to be taken seriously. So uh, that's the long answer to your short question. Um, really, uh, you know, uh, was able to, to get involved in 2008 based upon uh, the foundational experience of going through 9-11 as a young kid and then having the um, stroke of good fortune to be at the Democratic Convention in 2004 uh, and was able to see Obama in person for the first time. Yeah, I think it's, it's it's a fascinating story, yours, in that sense that a lot of Australians may not realise that, you know, you, you, you know, you, you, Got a birthday present for your folks to catch a, a plane up to. Up I was to, committed to the cause. You, you really were uh, to catch a flight up to New Hampshire to go and volunteer on a primary campaign for a candidate that up until that, well, he had just surprised everyone by winning the Iowa caucus the week before. Well, I had I, I went just in the week before the caucus. Well, there you go. So he, he hadn't even I won was, anything yet. Yeah. No. Like to take uh, the, to take a uh, a um, a hunch on a guy that he w- was not the establishment candidate and was not predicted to, and I think probably people would have probably thought it was going to actually be a contest between Hillary Clinton and John Edwards as opposed to Senator Obama um, to go on that journey, which then leads you on to it wasn't just after New Hampshire and he loses the New Hampshire primary to Hillary Clinton. Where did you where did you go next? What was your next move 
on that campaign? So my next move on that campaign was actually a phone call. Um, <laughs> after we lost the New Hampshire primary, I was like in hook, line, and sinker. I was like, this is something I want to be a part of because this campaign was investing in me as a person, how? teaching me skills, teaching me how to organize my community. And um, I wanted to be involved through to the end, which, you know, who, knows, who knew when that was going to be hmm. or what the outcome was going to be. So my first move was a phone call where I called my dad and basically begged him to let me drop out of college uh, to continue <laughs> working on the campaign. That conversation lasted about five minutes and was a hard no. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, the next move after that was going home and, and back for the rest of my sophomore year of college. But I, uh, was able to sort of stay involved and, um, applied for, uh, you know, a fellowship over the summer, which, uh, worked out. And, uh, I was able to have, um, my choice of wherever I wanted to do, I could do the fellowship wherever I wanted. And so I was like, you know what, this, this could be kind of cool. I'm going to go to Oregon and just, <laughs> I've never been there. It's kind of a random place. I had a friend from college who lived there. So I was like, let's, let's go see what this is all about. And I uh, spent the summer in Portland, um, Oregon, organizing there, learning what it means to be an organizer and actually, you know, doing the work of the house parties, the list building, the voter registration, um, and so that, that was great. And then it became time to go back to school and I still really didn't want to do that and really wanted to work on the campaign. So I made a list of all of the states where Obama, Obama's campaign had an office and a phone number. And I ranked them in a list of like the ones that were like most desirable to work in and like couldn't get through to any one of them except for the last one was, uh, Alaska. And I just kind of like threw it. I was like, this has got to be a mistake on their website. Um, <laughs> so I just called them up anyway and was like, Hey, yeah, I've been organizing. This is what I've done. Pretty interested to, to get involved. Um, are you hiring? And the guy who picked me up was the, or who picked up the phone was the field director. He's like, Oh yeah, send me your resume. And so I did. And like, a week later, uh, I had successfully this time dropped out of school <laughs> and moved to Alaska uh, and began organizing there. That's fantastic. The um, and then the journey then obviously because then Hillary Clinton, sorry not Hillary Clinton, Sarah Palin was the, yes. became the nominee, which kind of put a, uh, an end to your Alaska organizing dreams. Which you know was Alaska was a great experience, but I was there in the months of August and September and. Uh, I think at that time I was, uh, you know, we were looking at the, the, the calendar and we were heading into the winter there. And so I think, um, you know, it was good fortune that, uh, I was able to move on to more, uh, temperate environs. But, um, yeah, so after that, uh, they, they transitioned me to Iowa and Eastern Iowa, which, um, was its own fascinating experience, being from suburban uh, D.C. Um, and all the other places I'd been to in the country working on the Obama campaign were really exciting. Um, but they all had this sort of like mystique about them, you know, New Hampshire being the first primary state, Oregon being, you know, what it is and on the West Coast and pretty far from home. And then uh, Alaska being this wild and an exotic place. You know, when you get switched to Iowa, 
I think a lot of people just tend to think about it as flyover country and, you know, what really goes on there. Uh, but that's sort of um, the sense that that state is overlooked really forces anyone who organizes there to focus on the conversations that they have with the people who live there and, and learn what's important to them. And so um, that really helped me hone the craft of organizing. But it also really sort of, I think, as a person, uh, deepened my sense of empathy and was able to help me expand, you know, the multitude of lifestyles that that people have and um, be a little bit more uh, respectful of them than I think I was ever capable of being. You were the organizer then for the uh, for Obama for America in 2008 in Iowa and then came back again in 2012 as the regional field director in, um, in another, another battleground state in Nevada. Um, two incredibly successful campaigns, uh, 08 and uh 2012 for the Democrats and obviously for Obama. Many talk about Obama as this generation's Bobby Kennedy, this sort of transformational moment in American political history. For you personally, working on the Obama campaigns in 08 and 12, what impact did that period of your life have on, you know, shaping you as a person going forward and and who you are today and the role that you can play as a citizen in America and the direction that the country is going? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's actually a really um, great question, and it it had a really um, profound impact on I think just like how how I view the world and my personality overall since I was such a young person. I think you know the main things things that I took away from that um, experience was that every person should have a sense of ownership over their community, no matter how long they plan to live in that community or how many communities they've been a part of. Um, you know, I think it's important for every person to take a sense of ownership uh, for that community's well-being and the well-being of the people in that community. Um, and then beyond that, I think it's also important to have, um, I understood walking away from that, that it's important to live a life uh, that's defined by values because ultimately those values um, come out in your actions. And it, I got pretty lucky in the sense that, um, as a, like a 20 year old person, it forced me to reflect on what I really consider important to me and what I want to devote my time to doing. Um, and then I think, you know, beyond that, it really helped me to understand that the world is tough. Um, not everybody gets a fair shake. Um, and that can be somewhat hopeless at times, but, uh, we, as people do in fact, actually have levers of power. Um, and that is politics. Uh, and that power is most effectively utilized when it's, um, united and people are involved in their community and involved in the process. And I think, I just walked away with an enduring appreciation of you know, what leadership is and why it's so important. And then, you know, also understanding that it doesn't always have to be through politics. There's many ways to live a, um, a productive life of service and to bring civic value to your community, whether that's as a activist or as a business owner. So those, I think, uh, were really, um, you know, the fundamental value sets that I walked away from that experience with and have really helped shape me as I um, became a young adult. Let's, uh, 
let's turn our attention to the Democratic primaries, which are well underway. It seems that the primary campaigns seem to start earlier and earlier each cycle. Um, so much so, I think we're going to start doing the primary campaigns for the 2024 ones now. Um, and it's not even worry about 2020. Uh, we've got 24 candidates in the field for the Democratic uh, nomination. Uh, and there's a school of thought out there that a huge field like this, similar to in 2016... Uh, with the GOP primaries, benefited Trump because Trump had a core base of voters and even though he was a sort of a clear outsider, um, he could consolidate his votes whilst this multitude of moderate establishment-style Republican candidates were splintering their votes um, across the board and leaving Trump with this sort of core base to stay in the race and build momentum. I'm just sort of keen to get your thoughts on the the 2020 field of Democratic uh, candidates with such a large amount of uh, candidates putting their hand up um, is it possible for an outsider who may be polling, you know, in the low teens, that sort of a Kamala Harris or a Mayor Pete, I'm never going to say surname because I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, to, I always go with Booty Judge. Yeah, that's good, good enough for me. Uh, to, uh, to build something substantial, uh, what kind of impact is this Melbourne Cup field going to have on the outcome of the Democratic nominee? Well, you know, that's a great question. And... Um, I think before we get into that, uh, this allows me to sort of flip the script and hear about what people in Australia are saying about it. You know, um, is there any conventional wisdom down there about about who it's going to be? Look, I think that uh, those Australians uh, on the left that are engaged in U.S. politics uh, are some of them. I, well, I can't can speak from personal experience i haven't really made up my mind who i want to support if i if i you know could lend any support obviously i can't but um i've, I've been looking at, there's so many goddamn candidates that i'm actually just trying <laughs> to work out which one kind of you know fits in with my own values frame seriously uh, um but i'm also looking at it from the perspective of just and i think you and i kind of had an argument once via um, um i messaged one afternoon about um, just pick a candidate that's going to beat Trump. I mean, I th- sort of feel like that's the most important thing to do here. I think anything else uh, is kind of uh, like well, secondary at this point in time. Um, but I, the, I, I think... Beat, just, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, but I, I think for without being able to speak on behalf of other Australians, I think that, that we're all kind of spread because we're all just looking at so many different candidates and jumping... You know, I'm hearing plenty of people like Mayor Pete, plenty of people like, you know, Joe, Joe Biden, plenty of people are really getting on Elizabeth Warren. So... It's um, it's it just I guess what's similar to what might be happening in the states is that you know a lot of Australians that are you know, progressives are sort of being spread across this huge field. Yeah, for sure. Just on the like thing about the uh, anybody can be who can be Trump. I mean, this is a conversation that I have all the time. I think when you do that, you ultimately are compromising your values, and um, that's ultimately what is going to beat Trump, I think, is the articulation of those values and why you're able to uh, deliver on them and then getting people to identify with those values and turn out to vote for them. You know, I think uh, people wonder if someone like Mayor Pete or Elizabeth Warren can win an election and against Trump. I think anyone who can win an election can win an election against Trump. You know, whether that's the Iowa caucus, the primary in New Hampshire or South Carolina or Nevada or whatever, you know, if you can win one of those, you can beat Trump. Um, so I think we as a party are beginning to sort of come to our senses on that a little bit. Uh, 
And we are now shifting the conversation back to values. And that's one of the reasons why we've had so many of these great um, sort of like out of nowhere uh, candidates come to the fore. But, you know, I guess you brought up the Melbourne Cup style primary that we've got going on. And I think there are elements of that conventional wisdom that are true, uh, that there may be so many candidates that, you know, it allows for an outsider to stand out. But I think the historical factors that really propelled Trump um, were unique to the Republican Party in 2016. And I don't know that those are directly transferable to uh this primary. So I think when we look at that, you know, 2016 and and the primary specifically, what really propelled Trump was this divergent media media strategy and a predatory uh, message that resonated with a lot of people. Um, He had this primary, you know, primary politics is a funny thing in that it's still real people who are voting and not just, you know, party party loyalists, party members. And when, you know, at least as like a member of the, the labor party might, might understand it. Mm. And cause it's somewhat different here with the way people register to vote and choose parties and, and stuff like that. Um, but I think, uh, you know, Trump was really able to, uh, communicate sort of the dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction with inequality and honed in on that message and was, you know, he uh, was so devoid of shame as to become a media spectacle. And that uh, combined with the fact that he was really focusing on uh, dissatisfaction uh, while you know the uh, establishment of the Republican Party kept on talking about how they were going to do stuff for the party's donor class, I think really, uh, really drove home that, that message and was what allowed him to stand out. So um, I think, uh, you know, it's going to be a different story for the Democrats in 2020. I, uh, in, in, the sen- in the sense that just, you know, to, to add to that one little thing, it's going to be a different story because the media dynamic is different this time. There is no one so shameless as to be a spectacle and therefore worthy of wall-to-wall media coverage. So there's going to be a lot more focus on who can promise a transformational vision, I think. I um, am keen to get uh, your sort of hot take on a number of the main candidates. And I've kind of um, picked um, Biden, Warren Sanders, Harris, uh, Mayor Pete, yeah. O'Rourke, Booker and Klobuchar as the ones I want to get your thoughts on. So there's quite a list for, there. Uh, for the uninitiated, that would be Klobuchar. Klobuchar. So what did I say? Klobuchar. Yeah, something not Klobuchar. Right, I'm going to call her Amy. Um, <laughs> if we've got maybe Pete, Mayor Pete, why not Amy? Yeah, Amy. Um, just kind of get going to get sort of your quick couple sentences on each of them before we then start to move through some of the other topics of the of of, of discussion. Uh, sort of strengths, weaknesses, and likelihood you think of them staying in the race past Super Tuesday. And let's start with the one that's polling the most at the moment. And that's um, Vice President Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Well, uh, Diamond Joe, uh, I think his biggest strength is obviously his name recognition, right? People know him. Uh, they know that he is somewhat of um, a foil to Trump in the way that in the sense that he was part of a quite stable administration um, and benefits very much from that. 
Uh, and he's built up this brand as sort of this working class hero who's driven by um, common sense, I think, traditional American values as, as you know, we've traditionally understand, understood them. Uh, if, if I'm going to give a hot take about that, I think he's honestly the weakest candidate right now. Uh, he's hit his ceiling. He's not, he can't go up anymore. Um, I think the more exposure that he has against the other candidates, the more that they call out um, his associations with things that are really unpopular uh, with primary voters specifically. And I think um, he uh, will not really resonate with uh, the two biggest most important blocks of voters, I should say, in this primary. Um, and I, I really do see that as the millennials and sort of the left. So I think that's why, even though he's leading in the polls, I think that's primarily a function of name recognition. Uh, and he is um, the most vulnerable candidate right now, especially among the front runners. What about Elizabeth? Okay, let's turn to Elizabeth Warren. What are your thoughts on her? I think Elizabeth Warren is doing a tremendous job um, Number one, um, she, like Joe Biden, has built this brand, and and even Bernie Sanders too, has built this brand um, of being identified with sort of this traditional aspirational vision of American values where uh, if you play by the rules, you can can really move up in life. Now, the problem she would – point to is the fact that the rules sort of don't apply to everyone right now and the rules have have changed so as not to uh, benefit, um, you know, people who are looking to strive. And and she's putting forth real concrete plans of what she wants to do to sort of change the the game. Uh, I think one of the great similarities between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders is they've both built um, these communities around their campaigns. Uh, especially online. And Elizabeth Warren has done that in really uh, smart ways uh, with her plans. Now, it'll be interesting to see uh, whether or not those plans have staying power because she is the first person to put out substantive a substantive vision of what she wants to do with the presidency. Uh, I, and that's generated a lot of media coverage for her, which I think is, is really great. Um, now when, and if other candidates start putting together and, uh, their own plans, you know, do, do hers sort of stand up, uh, to the test of, uh, the media, who knows? But I think she, um, is my dark horse as far as, uh, as a very competitive candidate right now. I guess, yeah, not even dark horse because she's, she's doing well, but I, I would be putting lots of money on her right now. Okay. To be honest with you. Right. We do have gamblers that listen to this podcast, so they'll be very pleased to uh, get your odds on Yeah, that. I'm just trying to give my tips because we don't really have the – I can't go down to the crown, you know, and start putting uh, <laughs> putting bets on here. Well, maybe some people can put some bets on for you over here. Let's then turn to Bernie. Yeah, Warren, people, put it on. <laughs> but, now, the other thing that I do know is that her burn rate is really big. She's spending like – I think her burn rate is – is up near 100%. She's spending cash pretty much as fast as she gets it, which I think is really smart. I've never heard that term before, burn rate. Yeah. So um, money comes in from fundraising, and you know there's two sort of schools of thought of how you, you use it. 
do you just sort of spend it as you get it or do you sort of hoard it and use it for like strategic deployment on things like media or, or something else? The biggest contrast here would be Warren versus Harris. I think Harris has proven to be quite conservative with the way that she's staffing and building her operation. However, I think that's a really big strategic mistake. The fact that Elizabeth Warren has done a really good job sort of uh, generating media coverage for herself uh, with these plans and her uh, videos, like her selfie line tradition after each uh, event that she does is, is really great for um, translating online. And then, you know, that builds up the buzz and she's got the staff to be able to back it up and reach people and capitalize on that, especially in a state like Iowa. Um, so she, she's, uh, she's making really smart decisions there. Also, it's a primary, you know, it's a, you know, momentum play. If you're not winning one of the first four or five races or, you know, you're sort of out of it. So what's the point in even sort of hoarding that money? Yeah. Okay, let's turn to Harris then. Give, give, give me your thoughts on, uh, on Kamala Harris. I think she's, you know, look, she's proven to, to have some staying power there in the polls. Uh, she's quite popular um, amongst, you know, different, uh, different communities. And uh, she's popular in her home state of California. But so is Bernie Sanders and so is Elizabeth Warren. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see, uh, what, what happens there. Um, I personally think that, look, she's been pretty conservative as a candidate and she said pretty early on that I'm going to be in Washington once a week, especially for carrying out my duties as, um, a member of the intelligence committee. So, uh, you know, she's not as exposed um, but she has online and, and through the media, but she has done a really good job building a community uh, around her campaign. And it's going to be interesting to see how it how it goes. I know she's um, focusing primarily on South Carolina and Nevada, uh, which, you know, do, are emblematic of the various communities that she's popular with. Uh, that being you know, obviously the African-American community, but then uh, the you know labor community as well. She is less popular um, amongst millennials in the left, which I think is the most important block of voters in this primary. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how she navigates that. But I think if she and she's being pretty conservative in the way that she's deploying her money. But I think if she doesn't uh, shake things up and, and make herself more uh, accessible uh, on the campaign trail, uh, she's, uh, she's gonna, gonna have a tough time, um, when the votes start getting counted and, you know, she's, she's putting it all on South Carolina and, and, and Nevada. And I think that's going to be a really interesting, um, outcome to watch. Four years later, are uh, democratic voters still feeling the burn? How's Bernie Sanders going to fare? His polling numbers are still quite strong. In fact, he's right. well. I think Bernie um, is similar to Joe Biden in the sense that he's got a lot of name recognition. Um, he also look. He what I think is so impressive about Bernie Sanders is he has been consistent his whole career. Like go back and look at clips from the eighties and he's the eighteen eighties. Yeah, he is who he says he is, and I think. 
Look, on the if you flip that coin over and you look at Donald Trump, he is who he says he is too. And I think people like what matters most in this environment is authenticity, and he's definitely got that. He also um, has uh, transformational uh, policies that that he wants to put out there. Uh, he hasn't been as articulate this time around as Elizabeth Warren has about his plans. Um, but I think, um, you know, uh, he's still, he's still got that brand name recognition. And I think, uh, even if people don't support Bernie Sanders, they respect his consistency and his passion and, um, his values are pretty, um, pretty front and center to who he is in the politics that he, uh, he participates in. So I think, uh, I think that's, that's, you know, he, people are definitely still feeling that and he's still really popular among millennials, uh, and the left, uh, in the, uh, in the primary, uh, in the scheme of primary voters. However, I will say just judging by him, uh, he's got the same weakness that Joe Biden does. He's Bernie Sanders is a front runner. Uh, it's going to be hard for him to, to go up. Uh, and I think, um, we will see whether or not, you know, whether he, he can recapture lightning in the bottle again as a, uh, as an outsider. James Carville, uh, the raging Cajun said a couple of weeks ago on a podcast when he was talking about, uh, Joe Biden and by extension, Bernie Sanders, he was just saying, like he said, he likes both those guys, but he said, we just in, in, in this modern age, we cannot have, uh, two politicians who will be 80 years old and living in the white house he said i mean yeah as a 31 year old i couldn't agree more but you know i'm not really um that's not what's driving my decision personally no but i guess he's getting to the point that you know we have 24 people and climbing putting their hand up uh, surely there must. Have you be. thought about it? Yeah, exactly. You know, like who else is interested? <laughs> anyway, that was, I thought that was an interesting point. Um, and you know, eighty-one, eighty-two years of age and running for re-election. Like, come on, like they're fourteen years past the uh, retirement age in the United States. It's, that's just I, he was saying that's just ridiculous. Like we shouldn't be doing that. We're we're you know we we are the leaders of the free world. We should be showing a bit more leadership than putting you know retired people into the most important job in uh, in u.s uh, politics last but not least let's just look at mayor pete and then we'll um, we'll move on to some other topics i want to talk to you about tell me about mayor pete what are your thoughts on mayor pete because he certainly has um he got a bit of a sugar hit when he announced his candidacy a couple of months back well yeah i think he is the one who's caught people most by surprise in this election no question about it number one um just by uh, being 37 years old by being a mayor of a mid-sized town in Indiana um, and being, you know, obviously uh, gay, uh, which is which is a huge barrier that this country um, needs to to cross uh, in terms of electing a president. And um, I think he has really. Um, leaned into that part of his identity and says, Hey, this is who I am and I'm proud of it. It's not all I, who, who I am, but, um, I think people also in the same sense that they respect Bernie and Elizabeth Warren for being really, uh, transparent and, uh, consistent with, you know, being authentic. People really respect mayor Pete for that. 
think Mayor Pete is ultimately competing for a different set of voters um, than uh, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, at least among the primary. But I think when people look at Mayor Pete, they see um, a very intelligent person. They see a very competent manager, uh, someone who carries himself with, uh, I guess, how you would see uh, the traditional image of a president and um, makes people comfortable with sort of the newness that he represents. Um, And then, you know, there's obviously his top policies to talk about. Are they as progressive and therefore new uh, in terms of, um, you know, how people are, how open people are to them? Um, But uh, I think what is personally most interesting to me is the race uh, between Pete, Mayor Pete, Elizabeth Warren, and, and Bernie Sanders, and how that shakes out, particularly in Iowa and New Hampshire. I could honestly foresee a situation where you have a bit of uh, a stunner and Elizabeth Warren coming out on top in, in Iowa, or or close enough where that's the main story, and then Mayor Pete uh, winning New Hampshire. We'll go and talk a bit more about those two uh first caucuses and first uh, primaries in a moment. But just throughout your uh, sort of appraisal and hot takes on those candidates, you talked about different type of democratic voters. And I just wanted to um, talk to you about a column that I read in uh, 5.38 this week. Nate Silver grouped the democratic voting bloc into five groupings that he stressed two things. One, aren't mutually exclusive in that, 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 that if you're in one block, you can't be in another um, so they're not silos of voters. And the second thing was that one of the groups that aren't mentioned in here are women because women make up the majority of all of these blocks in itself. So the five that he listed, and I'll just sort of quickly run through them for uh, for you, Sam, and also for the, the um, our audience. Um, the first one... Good, because I didn't do the reading. <laughs> just kidding, I did. Uh, when I was at university, I don't think I ever did the reading once. Uh, but, but, it, partly, oh, I know. We know. <laughs> Uh, part, part, number one, the first group is party loyalists, and they're described as being mostly older, white, and upper middle class, and mostly women, and voted for Clinton in 2016. The second grouping is the left, mostly white males, um, mostly registered independents rather than Democrats, very radical on social and economic issues, and voted for Bernie in 20. 16. The third group is millennials and friends born between 1982 and 2004 um, tend to prefer change type candidates, but are very, very flaky uh, when it comes to turnout. Uh, voted, voted for Bernie in 20, uh, 2016. Uh, black voters, poorer, younger, and vastly overwhelmingly women, um, just like the party loyalists, very pragmatic voters, and voted for Clinton in 2016. And the final group were Hispanic voters, and in brackets, sometimes a combination with Asian American voters. Emphasis on economic issues, immigration, healthcare, education, like big government services, and voted for Clinton in 2016. These are the five uh, Groupings within the Democratic uh, voting bloc that w- that he is saying that you need to win three out of those five in order to lock up the nomination. And for example, in 2016, he suggests that um, Hillary Clinton won the party loyalists, black and Hispanic voters, um, whereas Bernie won the left and the millennials. 
uh, and that was enough for um, Hillary to lock up the, uh, a majority which was actually bigger than what Obama had in 2008. First of all, Sam Schneiderman, is this an accurate appraisal of the voting <laughs> blocks within the Democratic Party? Wow, I never thought in all my days I would be asked to appraise Nate Silver's work, but here we go. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I guess as a, I'm an organizer, so try and stay away from the witchcraft and sorcery of prediction. Um, but I would say that these blocks aren't particularly like new or, or interesting here. But the biggest factor, in my opinion, and, and from these uh, from the blocks that he put out here, uh, are going to be millennials. Um, that's because, uh, you know, he, Nate Silver brings up the point of about being flaky on turnout, which is true. But also, it's the largest, it's now going to be the largest vo uh, voting group. Um, and Bigger than party loyalists. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about generally within the population. Ah, okay, yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, so the cool thing about primaries is you can go out and register people to vote and bring new people in to the process. You're more likely to bring in millennials than any and than any like part, party loyalists right um and then on top of that millennials overlap the most with all of those different categories so when you think about the size and then their uh the the ceiling meaning that you can turn out a lot of them and there's more room to bring more of them into the party uh and then the fact that millennials are most likely to be affected by the issues of inequality that are going to drive the debate in this election, I think that is why they are the most uh, most important. Um, and then to add to that, I would say the left is pretty important uh, because they're the most organized online. Now, online is how we, how we are distributing a lot of ideas in this country right now. Um, and it's a big reason why we're talking about Medicare for all. It's a big reason why we're talking about the Green New Deal. Um, and then, you know, uh, there's been success of left candidates, Bernie, AOC. So people are aware of this. They are accepting of it. Um, and I, I think that those two blocks or, or groups are, are going to be the most influential in this cycle. And for me, sort of explains the popularity behind Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Mayor Pete. Do you think that those three candidates are the candidates that are vying for those two groups? Is, is their strategy to try and lock up as many of uh, the voters within the left and within millennials? Great question. I actually don't think that Mayor Pete is driving that hard for the left at all. I think he is going for millennials and party loyalists. Uh, Bernie obviously has his affiliation with the left and would probably be going more for uh, black voters and Hispanic voters, whereas Elizabeth Warren um, obviously is making a play for millennials pretty aggressively, is making a play for the left, and I think is making a play for party loyalists as well. The Black voters, uh, particularly women, um, certainly have been the backbone for democratic successes in elections against Republican candidates. Um, and 
I think in the last sort of decade have got very, very organised uh, and have been regarded as the, the voting powerhouse and backbone for, for, for democratic um, electoral success. Um, where do you see them fitting in all of this? Because you've sort of spoken about the leftism and the millennials as being uh, the key to, to, to success in the primary season. But uh, black voters, I want to get your thoughts on, on, uh, on, on them and who do you think will they, who do you think they will vote for in this, in this well, primary season? Yeah. I mean, like, like I said, these groups aren't, you know, like Nate Silver said, these groups aren't mutually exclusive. So I think, you know, black voters and black women should be seen as part of the millennials and the left groups. And, and often they are, and they are very well organized. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see sort of, uh, is that are black voters going to be, um, booing, uh, Kamala and, and really propelling her and Cory Booker as well, or is there going to be, um, more cleavage amongst that constituency and are they going to be spread across a few different candidates? Time will tell on that. I don't really have, um, too good of an answer, um, on that except to say that I feel pretty strongly that um, uh, the millennials and sort of the, the left are going to be uh, a key driver of the outcome of this and sort of these other constituencies fall uh, into like black voters, Hispanic voters fall into those two camps. Let's turn our attention to the first caucus, the first uh, the ballot, uh, which was, is the Iowa caucus. Before we do talk about the Iowa caucus, I think it's actually worth uh, explaining to listeners who aren't familiar with how a caucus process works in Iowa, um, in the school gyms and land rooms across the 99 counties in the Hawkeye State. Talk us through, um, on the day of the Iowa caucus, how that actually works and how it differs from a primary. Well, I think uh, the caucus is the most similar to what people would think of as a uh, branch meeting. Um so the way it's not a traditional election in the U.S. in the way that, you know, you go to your polling place, you mark down your candidate in the booth and then you leave. Um, a caucus is really a gathering of party members to discuss their preferred presidential preferences, uh, elect party leadership and sort of discuss uh, issues that make up the platform. Uh, so. The way that it works is that caucus goers are going to go to their local caucus place, which uh, is either a church or a school or some sort of like community place. And they're going to be asked to divide into groups based on their preferred candidate. Um, And then uh, sort of once that gets divvied up, caucus participants are counted uh, to set the number of supporters each candidate's preference group must have to reach viability. So typically, um, that's around 15% of the votes at that site. Okay. Now, after that happens, if a candidate hasn't reached the threshold, their supporters are free to sort of go off and support a different candidate. So group members can, can abandon their group and go support a different candidate. And then candidates can actually recruit individuals from other groups to join them. And so the outcome of all of this is that you're uh, electing delegates that sort of align with, with the campaign. And that's how the broader nominations decided, you know, 
how what is the number of delegates that a person need, you know has won and this is the process by which Iowa goes about and collects their uh their um their delegates now this presents um some unique campaigning challenges uh specifically around organizing and turnout making sure that people turn out to their caucus site, making sure that they don't leave and stick around, making sure that you have uh, persuasion on the day of um, and are able to sort of get people over to your side. So that would be my uh, very much crash course into (laughs) how caucusing works. And who do you think... who do you think is likely to succeed in that first caucus in Iowa out of the out of the candidates? I just noted the other day that the uh, YouGov CBS poll uh, released some some uh, polling numbers on first choice for likely Democrat voters, uh, and taking into consideration the the uh, the, um, the challenges that comes with polling these days. At the moment, it stands that Joe Biden is receiving thirty percent of the vote. Bernie Sanders, 22% of the vote. Elizabeth Warren, 12% of the vote. And Mayor Pete, 11% of the vote. The rest were uh, much smaller. Um, Are these the candidates that are actually putting a lot of time and energy and emphasis into this particular caucus? And who is the one, do you think, that will actually most likely succeed out of this this, uh, caucusing process? It's a great question. Um, I think the first thing to do is actually to talk about what success means. The person who wins the caucus isn't actually the person who is uh, the most successful in terms of uh, the narrative that comes out of it. So uh, you can come really close to winning, but if you're sort of an insurgent candidate who's making a late break for it and you come in second, even third place, uh, you can uh, you can steal sort of the headlines, and you now have the momentum coming out of it, plus some delegates. So um, the Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton uh, drama of 2016 would be uh, a case study in that. I think if you're looking at um, who the uh, most likely winners are, I would actually if. If you're going to go down to your local tab machine and and put a wager, um, I wouldn't be putting money on Joe Biden for the reasons I sort of said earlier. You know, he's kind of at his ceiling. He can't. I don't think he's going to do better um, in terms of finding new support. And everyone knows him. the more that uh, people get to know Elizabeth Warren and Mayor Pete, I think uh, the more that they are going to to sort of migrate to them from Biden and Sanders specifically. Beyond that, Warren and, and Pete and all the other campaigns need to sort of expand the electorate and build their build their lists. I do know that Warren is investing quite heavily, as is Bernie Sanders, uh, in the state and has been for months. Uh, so um, I think that could very much be, uh, there could definitely be a field impact uh, here at the end. Talk to me about the the role of money in this upcoming primary season and how it's changing because there seems to be a mood for change uh, amongst Democratic voters around uh, how candidates are financing their campaigns. I think this is actually one of my favorite topics. Uh, I could go on uh, on it for a while because it's actually one of the most 
um, change. It's, it's one of the areas that's changing the most within politics. So the first thing is that mega donor, well, give, uh, our Australian listeners maybe a bit of a backstory. The way that, um, fundraising was done, uh, traditionally, at least until 2008 was, um, these candidates would go to sort of like big donors and ask them for like $30,000 at a time. And that would be spread across various committees and things like that. Um, an element of that still very much exists today and actually was, was a key driver of Hillary Clinton's fundraising strategy. Ultimately, I think it was a mistake and, uh, but that was what she leaned into because it's what she knew. Um, now, uh, we had Citizens United as well, uh, which was decided in 2010. And what that said is that uh, donors can give unlimited amounts of money in secret to any sort of political action committee, as long as that political action committee does not explicitly align with a single candidate. So I, as long as like, I am, if I want to donate money to a super PAC that is like aligned with the conservatives, that's going to end up just bashing the Democrat. Right. And the implication of that is that it's ultimately helping out the candidate. It's not explicitly aligned to, it's totally absurd and ridiculous. Um, but, um, that has become a symbol of this rigged economy and rigged, uh, sort of system that we have in this country. So the first thing that I would say is that mega donors is bad politics. The winning candidate is really going to be, be the one that just taps into a distrust of uh, the elite, uh, the corporate class, uh, and identifies with the working class. And you really can't do that if you're raising tons of money from Wall Street and mega donors. I think the other thing is that small dollar donations are growing as a percentage of donations. And they're also um, candidates are, are able to raise more of a higher percentage of their money from small dollar donors than they have in the past for two main reasons. Number one, there's just more technological profusion, right? Campaigns have become more adept at using technology. Uh, Online fundraising has become more mainstream. And then two, uh, consumer behavior has really shifted in the sense that they are uh, people are just more comfortable with signing up and paying money online. Um, so that's a big thing. I would also say that small dollar donations allow candidates to generate media buzz and momentum, uh, especially online. So there's a shorter feedback loop between uh, me watching a viral video on Facebook and donating $5 to a candidate than, uh, you know, reading an article in the New York times and getting out my checkbook and writing a check for like $200. So there's this built in virality to small dollar donations online that really benefits candidates who get the digital portion of campaigning and how it ties in with the overall building of a campaign, uh, infrastructure. Buttigieg, Sanders, Warren, Kamala, they're all sticking out their own corners of the internet for these small dollar donors, and I think are really doing a good job of that. Beto did, did a good job of that. I think his support is kind of drying up a little bit. 
Um, but other candidates aren't faring as well because it's a crowded field. And so they're running into the politics problem of big dollar donors. They're, they can't really break through to um, get these small dollar donations at scale, which is what's needed. So they're having to go back to these big bundlers, but that undermines their message that they're going to be um, you know, the agents of change that our country needs. So I'm not really saying that high dollar donations are anachronistic. They're just not as efficient and effective at, um, fun, at uh, raising capital for your campaign as they used to be. In, t- in 2004, Howard Dean's primary campaign uh, was credited for his early adoption of using the internet for both fundraising and engaging online supporters. And then sort of four years later, we, in 2008, we had this unprecedented data-driven grassroots organising uh, campaign that mobilised millions of supporters and uh, drove um, Senator Obama um, uh, to a come from nowhere win over the highly fancied establishment candidate in Hillary Clinton um, and then achieved that again um, in terms of a, a, an unprecedented grassroots mobilisation four years later in the, in the presidential election. Um, I actually can't think of sort of how history will reflect on the 2016 primary race in terms of developing new campaign skills or, or whatnot, but certainly the advancement in peer-to-peer texting in particular to try to engage with younger, less engaged voters was something that came out of that campaign. How do you see new organising models being adopted in uh, for this sort of class of 2020? This is a great question. I think, um, you know, what you're going to be looking at is like a centrally coordinated model, for, which is what OFA was, right, um, versus a distributed model, which is what in 2016 Bernie was and in 2018 what Beto was. So when it comes to distributed organizing, the big advent here is obviously technology. So people are more dexterous with smartphones and the political system is more capable of developing good tools. There's more engineers involved in the process, right? So um, distributed organizing is really going to be uh, what power – it's what has powered some of the most successful – campaigns over the last two cycles, um, Beto and, and Bernie Sanders. Uh, so distributed organizing really is less about sort of getting volunteers to come into an office to make calls or go door knocking and more about how do you use digital tools to go to where your supporters are to have those conversations with the voters that you need to target. Um, so the digital flywheel sort of plays into this as well. If a, if a candidate is generating a lot of money online, is pushing the conversation, they're also able to sort of get their supporters onto an app doing direct voter contact rather than having their organizers reach out, kind of come in, commit to being a volunteer leader and doing the, the grunt work of organizing um, that, that um, is necessary, but sometimes takes a lot longer to build at scale. So the big trade-off here between a centrally coordinated and distributed model is obviously uh, the training uh, and data data integrity. But when you're an outsider with not a lot of money, uh, you know, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. And I think that is going to be a big thing that we see out of this election. How do you build relationships with the people, though, then, if you don't physically get to um, see them face-to-face? I mean, one of the strengths of the OFA model, which essentially was adopted here in Australia with the Community Action Network, was, you know, we talk about relationship building as the glue that bonds our grassroots movement together, and that's because 
volunteers in their local communities get to meet other volunteers, people they've probably never met before, and through uh, participating in face-to-face um, organising activities, they develop these relationships um, and uh, they... And from those relationships, they become more empowered and more inspired to get involved and take more action in a campaign. But when you've got that sort of distributed online model where you can just get someone to make calls from their home um, or do sort of online organising, they're not actually meeting anyone any, at any stage. How, how do you overcome that? Well, I think it's not, it's not an either-or proposition, right? I think what you're ultimately looking to do is, like, how can I get the most direct voter contact going to win an election. And the distributed model is very helpful to that, especially if you're an outsider candidate uh, with um, you know, a lot of support. However, it may not be uh, well organized where you need it to be. Um, the other thing that I would say about building relationships, it's all true and all important. However, um, people are able to now build these relationships online and they're able to be organized online. There's different, you know, Facebook communities that people have. Uh, there's different, um, Reddit communities that now exist. There's many different platforms on which people can sort of come together around that sense of common sense of shared values and shared purpose, uh, and, and have that sense of community. Um, in the physical presence, I think that stuff still absolutely goes on. However, you're able to sort of amplify your overall effect um, with distributed with that distributed model. Just quickly before we wrap up, uh, we've avoided talking about Trump um, for the large part of this podcast, which I think is <laughs> good, which is a good thing. Yeah, uh, but this the debate about impeachment of Trump. You know, Nancy Pelosi has sort of formed a view, which may change in time, but. Uh, she's, I think she's trying to keep her caucus together and say that, you know, if we were to focus on impeachment, it would be a distraction from what we actually are trying to achieve, which is winning elections at the 2020 November ballot, whereas there are elements within the caucus that are very much like stuff that this is a moral imperative. We need to, we need to impeach this guy because it's the right thing to do. What are your thoughts on on this? Is it a distraction or is it something that needs to be done? And can it be done really? I mean, that's the other thing. You have to be pragmatic about this. They're not going to get it through yeah. the Senate. Yeah, you really do. Thankfully, I'm not a uh, member of Congress, so I don't have to, to speak on this. But um, as an American citizen, I have definitely made up my mind. Uh, and I do think that he should be impeached. It's, unco- it's number one, if you just look at his sheer incompetence, any person who, uh, behaves like he does and is in charge of a large corporation or enterprise would immediately be removed. There's, I mean, it's ridiculous. The reason why he is still there is because he's effectively a rubber stamp uh, and a tool of Republicans in Congress. Um, beyond that, uh, he has run one of the most corrupt uh, administrations in our country's history. Uh, he is in clear violation of the emoluments clause of the constitution, which basically states, um, that no uh, leader can receive a gift from a foreign power. So he still has not divested from his businesses. He is in direct or ownership of the Trump organization, uh, which operates many hotels that are frequented 
by political uh, by um, political uh, interests of his, as well as um, emissaries of foreign nations that uh, don't necessarily have the same interests that the United States does. So that obviously compromises him and makes him a target of blackmail. Secondly, uh, you look at most of his campaign apparatus has been thrown in jail. Uh, and then if you follow up um, with the clear instances of instruction of justice, of obstruction of justice that um, Mueller laid out for Congress to investigate, I think that there are clearly grounds for impeachment. I understand the conventional wisdom that, that it would sort of tear the company, country apart. I understand uh, that you are asking um, vulnerable freshman Democrats to take a vote that could cost them their seat, um, which ultimately you're, you're going to need these people uh, if you want to pass a progressive agenda. However, you know what? Politics has to be about values and it's got to be about the right thing. He's, this guy has clearly violated the law. He has clearly betrayed American values so many times. And um, it's time for the House to begin the conversation about why he should be removed from office, which effectively is what impeachment is. You are saying, hey, look, we've got to have a conversation about why this person should be removed from office. Here are all the reasons why. Here are all the witnesses who can attest to that. Um, if he is, in fact, impeached, he would go on trial to the Senate. Uh, and the political calculus then shifts. Are these people going to uh, stand by him and the clear evidence that exists? Or they can continue to uh, turn a blind eye uh, in the furtherance of their narrow self-interest, um, which I think is what everybody expects. Um, the Democrats need control of the Senate to, uh, as well as the House and the White House to pass the progressive agenda that this country needs right now. Um, we're not going to get any closer to that if we don't ever ask our freshman, vulnerable freshman Democrats to take hard votes. Politics is about, like life, sometimes hard choices. Um, but if you ask me, if you look at the evidence, if you operate by um, a common sense of decency, there is no question that Donald Trump should be impeached. And I hope he is. Um, it's look, I don't think it's, uh, I think it's a very difficult, uh, conversation f internally for the Democrats to have, and clearly they're having that, uh, right now. And I, you know, I completely understand what you're talking about there, but the challenge is that you can't action those values that you speak of if you don't have bums on seats in your Congress. And that's the, you know, that's the biggest challenge that I think that probably, or competing yeah. challenges that I, the Democrats face each yeah. other right now. And I'm a, you know, I'm a school of, I'm pragmatic. I just, I always think that you can't bring about change unless you're in government and right now, um, yeah, yeah but like what, what change, you know, I guess if we're going to have the debate, what change can the Democrats really bring about right now? It's not a lot because the agenda is not going anywhere. What I think that they can do most effectively is oversight. 
right? That is what they're doing, especially when they're only in control of one chamber of Congress. And that is what impeachment allows you to do. It allows you to have a really well-organized exercise of oversight and organized presentation of the outcome of that oversight to the voters. Um, yeah, that's so, true. That's true, Sam. But the, the the other point I would make is is that I think it actually kind of falls into a trap that Trump wants Democrats to do, and that's to talk about him. Because when they're talking about him, they're not talking about voters, and voters will look upon that as as just more, um, you know, st- uh, noise that's happening inside the Beltway in DC. And actually, the biggest challenge for Democrats is to get back to talking about people's lives, and impeachment uh, can be potentially a big distraction from that. Oh, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, and that's what makes this so fraught. Um, it's it's not an easy decision, but um, I think when you do sort of the cost benefit analysis, that's that's where I I certainly come down, and I, I understand why people may have a different view of it. Um, but uh, I mean, you know what? Whether yeah, whether or not impeachment does happen. I think the conversation is still going to happen uh, about what people are going to do uh, for voters, um, especially because there's a presidential election going on. So, um, you know, I understand why it's such a hard issue. And that's why I said I'm glad I'm not a, uh, <laughs> not a member of Congress. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I look forward to your run uh, in uh, 2020 or 2024. I'll bring over a whole bunch of uh, field alumni to come and uh, work on your campaign. Sam, I would appreciate that. People can take kangaroos to the polls. <laughs> I uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today, tonight. I know it's your uh, evening, it's our um, afternoon. It's been a great chat. We're going to have to leave it there. We've had so much to talk about. Well, I'm going to have to get you back on again. I know that the first Democratic primary debate is uh, next Wednesday, the 26th of June. Uh, I don't know how they're going to get a stage big enough to fit everyone um but they have, uh, they're, they're splitting it up into two right um, i feel like it's going to be like the bachelor or something <laughs> i'd like to see that i'd like to see I someone mean, presented with a rose to, to the winner of the of that particular yeah maybe debate. maybe instead of a rose it's like a uh a kitschy uh trinket that is associated with uh with the early primary states yeah so corn um corn and a snow globe for new hampshire that's it Uh, Mate, it's been great talking to you again. Um, Best of luck with all your future endeavors. Um, I I didn't even get a chance to talk talk again, right? We're going to talk again. Don't you worry about that. (laughs) And because we've had this podcast, I know that Kate Scully will now want to do her own uh, podcast with me as well. So I'll look forward to it. She's she's truly brilliant. So I'm sure that's going to be far more entertaining than anything that I've laughed about. Absolutely. Uh, mate, all the best. We'll, uh, Likewise. We'll, um, Thank you very much. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon and, uh, and be safe. Likewise. Bye-bye.